Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Claudia Golden, who is Professor of Economics at Harvard University. She was the director of the NBER's Development of the American Economy program from 18, uh, from 1989 to 2017. She is currently a co-director of the NBER's Gender in the Economy Study Group. Welcome, Claudia. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, you you have a new book. Uh is the book published already or just coming out? I came out about uh 3 weeks ago. 3 weeks ago. So, brand new book, Career and Family: Women's Century-Long Journey Toward Equity. Uh a century-long journey, Claudia. Um so, so I I want to go uh go into history a little bit, but before we do that, Uh, I want to ask you sort of a status quo question. So, are we are we reaching equity? Uh, are we getting closer? Where where are we now? Well, we're certainly getting closer. That's why I've written the book. I've written the book because I want to emphasize that there is progress, but there are still problems. So, when you say equity here, uh, part of that is economic equity. So, this problem uh, we know. Um, existed for a long time uh just the differential in compensation uh between uh, men and women in almost every industry that you can think of um but if you rewind time back let's say you know right after the war what was the situation then in the US not much different i mean if anything uh the difference would be that uh education levels for women although in the US were relatively high compared to other countries um they uh that was a a moment when they were falling back in terms of uh college education the the guys are going to college it's not just the GI bill but it's also that uh parents if they have a son and a daughter at that time 
would be sending their son uh, to do something that is, you know, relatively expensive, something that they were going to have gains from. Uh, in terms of advanced degrees, women are at that moment are, are very far behind. There's a tremendous catch up somewhat later. Yeah, I, I grew up in South India, Claudia, and this is a phenomenon that was uh, very prevalent there. Uh, I, I didn't know uh, what the situation was in the U.S. So um, men uh, had higher opportunities, let's say, for education, and that difference then shows up in, in workplace, in compensation and so on, right? Sure, but uh, let, let me just make something very clear that um, for the first several decades of the 20th century, women actually had greater levels of high school graduation than men in the U.S. The U.S. led the world in mass education, and it also led the world in women's education. So first few years of last century, um, so, so we were ahead in terms of that, that gap that we see, and, and things sort of um, fell down from there? Yeah, but one has to think about what the economy was demanding of labor. So there was a huge sea change across the 20th century in the demand for brawn labor to the demand for brain labor and sort of it's, it's that sort of sea change that is extremely important in the rise of women in the labor force so for example in the 19 teens the 1920s there's a huge increase in the demand for office work clerical workers uh you know what we now call pink collar workers but at the time they they were thought of as it was good work it was shorter hours, cleaner work. Women, young, single women, some married women, entered the labor force in those in those jobs. And they could do that in the US because there were extensive high schools and women were graduating from high school. But those are not the sort of jobs that are sort of really sustaining. Those are not jobs that are going to have long progressive ladders. So those are more of the dead-end jobs, but they're relatively good jobs. So it's an analogous situation today. It's a bit like call center, call center jobs. Um, but from an economic uh, compensation perspective, they were compensated well compared to, compared to men? Well, the, the point is that there, there wasn't a lot of overlap. So... Um, so secretaries that sort of began, the word secretary itself means the keeper of the firm's secrets. And secretaries in the 19th century were mainly men. They became women. Uh, within the group of secretaries, within the group of typists, typists were often paid, you know, almost on like a piece rate system. Within the group of stenographers, there's going to be relatively equal pay but women aren't going to become the supervisors. Women aren't going to become the managers. So the supervisors and managers still used to be men in those in those situations. Yeah, I think the best example would be in banks, where it would be rare for there to be 
women who people would see when they entered a bank. The whole notion that there are female bank tellers is a post-1940s change. It's one of the most interesting changes in the labor force because in the 1940s, you know, prior to the 1940s, if you entered a bank and you saw a woman, you might think, well, the bank may be, you know, not as stable as a bank in which you entered and you saw only these men who sort of looked a little like prunes. And so what changed was was that uh, during the war, there weren't that many men and and women were put in, in the, the role of tellers. And it was discovered that, in fact, people like the women who were tellers and the switch was enormous. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, but the downside, if I understand this correctly, Claudia, the downside is that the expectations were set that that is what they would do. Uh, and supervisors and managers will continue to be men. And for, for whatever reasons, that convention was set in, right? Yeah, so, so it really took a big change in terms of the ability of women to go to college, finish college, delay marriage, delay having children, but not give up the ability to have family later. And that sort of comes in in the switch from what I call group three to group four. And it comes in with another really very important technological advance and that's the pill. So the timing, so group three, you have these groups based on uh, now the years that they lived or, or worked. So what is group three? What is the period that? Okay, so, so the groups are divided very naturally by what they aspired to and what they achieved. So group one, so these are college graduate women, all of them, Group one had either career or family. It was a group that graduated college somewhere around the first two decades of the 20th century. Group two is a sort of a transition generation from group one that had very few children. In fact, 50% of that group never had children, never adopted a child. So group two is a transition from that somewhat extreme group to another extreme group, which is, but completely different, which is group three, which is the mothers of the baby boom. They graduated college. They got married very quickly after after college. They um, had children uh, very quickly after that. And they had lots of children. And in fact, in that group. So group three is graduating college from around 19, the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s. Um, and, and it was the subject of Betty Friedan's The, the Feminine um, Mystique. So in that group, uh, as opposed to the first one, uh, the vast majority of those women had families. They set their goal as family, and then they prepared themselves in college to 
get a job that was consistent with raising their children. And some of them even um, had careers. But by the time they were in their 40s, they had labor force participation rates that were in the 70 percent area, whereas when they were younger, they were raising their families and they had very low labor force participation rates. So group three is really family and then a job, teachers, librarians, administrators. And then group four sort of looks at this and responds and has the ability to respond to say, having a family, you know, that's the easy part. We want equality, we want a career. And that group is graduating from college from the late, the tumultuous 1960s until around 1980. So that's group four. Yeah, so what happened during that transition from group two to group three? Uh, what, what suddenly changed in society in terms of people wanting to have kids and and all of that early? Uh, is it the war, the end of the war that actually started the so- whole yeah, so 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 there there is this, as I said, group two is this transition, this slow transition. Group two, sort of the beginning of it looks more like group one, and the end of it looks more like group three. And that transition sort of predates the the war. there There is sort of a, a move to the in responding to the notion that a college wo- woman, needn't have to choose between having a job and having a family. That member I said before that there was this burgeoning white collar sector, well, it also affected uh, many types of of professionals. Um, For for example, journalists, editors, um, principals of schools, high level administrators, middle level managers, and so there was a sense that um, you you needn't have to give up having a job uh, and maybe even a career. You needn't have to give that up to have a family. And so there there was this this sense that you can get married, have kids, and then go on. I mean, one of the great examples from Group Three is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, she began her life. I mean, she was always extraordinary and different, but she and Marty graduated from the same university I graduated from with a BA, and that's Cornell University. And um, they met in college and they married very soon after graduation. They had children very soon after that. She was in law school at Harvard. He graduated and wanted to go to New York and she left. She left Harvard and went to Columbia. And she did some of the same things that that uh, someone who was more ordinary than she would have done at the time. And then uh, her career obviously took off. Yeah, so so the, the group three um, says I can have both family and and a job and possibly a career. So but, but, in an, but in a very strict order, you couldn't have you couldn't have your little kids 
and work. So you delayed working until the kids were in elementary school. So to sequence it uh, in some ways. So, so statistically, um, were we looking at um, equity at that point? Were we happy with just labor force participation? You say, you know, there are more women in labor force. Everything is everything is good. Uh, did we start really looking at the the numbers underneath that? Uh, you know, in in the fifties and sixties. So it's really the sixties that there was a sense that something was missing. So so remember that was the. You know, it's very hard in history to separate movements. Movements seem to come together. So we had the civil rights movement. We had sort of women's liberation and women's rights. And we had the anti-war movement and these and we had gay rights. And these sort of come together and become sort of stronger because there are more of them. So, so that is when sort of the economic questions became more interesting to at least study. Uh, in the first chapter, you talk about greedy work. What do you mean by greedy work? So, so let's let's finish the groups and then I'll yeah. uh, go to greedy work. So, because greedy work is gonna gonna come in, and you raise a very important question, which is when do we start asking questions? about differences in earnings and what they're due to. So group four says, I want career and I also want family, but I'm going to time them. I'll, I'll do career first and then family. And um, they sort of run out of time. They, they, the pill is really, really good for stopping contraception but they don't have a very good way of sort of bringing it back in when they're over the age of 35, 40. And group five somehow realizes that something's missing and will sort of put that together. And we're not going to have career or family. We're going to have, and we're not going to have career then family. We're going to have both of them. And they, they have, also delayed family, they delayed marriage even more than group four, but they have figured out through yet more great technological advances, uh, assisted reproductive um, uh, technologies, and they have increased the, the fraction who have, who have children. But now let's go back to equity. So in the 19th so five, sorry, sorry, Claudia, so group five is sort of the contemporary group. Yes. So so it's very it's hard to say what what people will do. So I always end group five as I can talk about them with women who are about 40 years old. So someone who's 25 now can tell me what she thinks she's going to do, but I don't know what she's going to do. Um, so let, let's go back to the 60s and think about uh, the uh, movement to, to do something about the fact that women are earning, remember, it was 59 cents on the dollar. We should do better than that. And much of the difference we now, as, as um, 
economists and social scientists, we can go back and analyze what happened over time. We see that in the 1980s in particular, relative wages for women versus men at all ages, relative wages increased by quite a lot. And we can look at that and parse it out and we can see that much of the change was due to the fact that women had more education, better education. They had JDs, they had MBAs, they had PhDs, they had MDs. That increased enormously in the 1970s. They were majoring in subjects that were more relevant to the world of work and less relevant to sort of more consumption oriented uh, orientation. And so their earnings relative to men increased by quite a lot. In addition, they were remaining in the labor force rather than being in the labor force, leaving for five years, coming back in, leaving, coming back in. They had more continuity. But we now see that even though we've made so much progress, there's something that seems to be resisting a movement, that it's still the case that women earn considerably less than men, and they earn more less than men at a greater amount as their careers go on. So someone who is a lawyer, for example, might start out with the same earnings as the individual, a man she graduated law school with. And then 10 years out, she's behind by a, a fairly large amount. And one of the reasons is that, that she had kids. She was in a couple that had kids. He was in a couple that had kids. And they realized that, of course, if you take a job in a high-pressure law firm, you're going to be spending a lot of hours at that firm. And that's, I have a better definition of greedy work, but it's sort of like that. The notion is that you're, and we can see that in lawyers because they get, uh, they, they have hourly rates. So the hourly rate of lawyers who work in the big firms that demand a lot of time, those hour, hourly rates are higher than in the boutique firm, the smaller firm that she might work in. So the issue is that couples, be they same-sex couples or heterosexual couples, when they have kids, someone has to be on call at home. That person has a full-time job, but the job can't be one in which they have to be there at a moment's notice. The job can't be one in which they can't, you know, they 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 um, have to give up weekends or evenings. And so that's the sort of greedy job. And so what we can see now is that what remains is the difference between the greedy jobs and the flexible jobs. Yeah. Um... So it's a couple of thoughts I want to get your perspective on. One is so the couple faces uh, an optimization problem uh, and they could distribute work in an optimum way to maximize, let's say, income. But I was also wondering, 
from the firm's perspective, are the managers of the firm making rational decisions? In other words, the inequity that we see, is it really rational? Is it, is it, it can it be completely explained by uh, the absence uh, to, to, to raise children, maybe taking part-time work? Can it be explained by all of those, uh, in which case the managers of the firm are you know, rationally maximizing shareholder value, or there's something else going on? Well, so it's, it's so given a certain set of fundamentals, the the firm is probably making pretty rational decisions. However, uh, place by place, time over time, these fundamentals can change. And we've seen a very large change in fundamentals in the past 20 months. We've seen suddenly that people, men and women, realize that flexibility is possible and flexibility is. So I'll give you a, a good example that there are lots of jobs. So before March of 2020, there were a lot of jobs that women with children um, couldn't take and they couldn't take them because they were the on-call at home parent. And these jobs, the on-call at home parent probably still works 50 hours a week often, but the on-call at home parent can't go to Tokyo every weekend. The on-call at home parent can't go to Zurich on Mondays. So there were lots of jobs that were, um, because of the fundamentals, they had high remuneration that the on-call at home parent couldn't take, be it a man or a woman, be it from a same-sex couple or a heterosexual couple. Well, what we've learned since March of 2020 is that that handshake in, in Tokyo can be done through Zoom or Teams or whatever platform you're using. And so, so the first part of the answer to what you said is that the fundamentals can change. And, and I have an, uh, an interesting set of examples, one of which is, is pharmacy, which was a set of, of changes that were organic. But there are other examples in which the changes occur because workers on uh, mass say, we, we don't want a life like this. So certain types of, of subspecialties in, in, uh, in medicine, for example, uh, might say, we, we, we don't want to have a job in which we don't see our families. We love our families. And so group practices have been put in place, which allow individuals to be good substitutes for each other. Basically, if you're the on-call at home parent, all you need is one really good substitute. Right. Yeah, so flexibility always existed. Uh, the, the pandemic uh, sort of showcased uh, showcased that to, to companies and people. Uh, I wrote a book in 2009, uh, Claudia, it's called Flexibility. And I argued that there is, I argue that there will be no companies in the future, incorrectly. <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought every individual 
will become a company because they, you don't really have transaction costs, that high transaction costs. So all the reasons we thought existed for large corporations to form, I felt were all going away. But that wasn't true. <laughs> I was completely wrong on that. Uh, 11, 12 years later, we, the, the system is, it looks pretty much the same. And before the pandemic, you sit in a car for an hour to get to downtown. You, you, you sit in meetings for eight, nine hours. You sit in a car again for one hour to come home. A lot of wasted time um, in, in all these companies. It seems like we are pushing forward with the same concept. So, so, so why do you think, why do you think that is? So let me say that flexibility was always there, but it was very expensive. So it's always the case that I can, uh, if someone is working for me and is working 50 hours a week and says, I want to work 25 hours a week, I can say, of course you can. And rather than getting half the pay, you're going to get one third the pay. So, so it's not so much flexibility per se, it's the cost of flexibility. And so this notion that you could do the handshake in Zurich without going to Zurich really reduces the price of flexibility. Flexibility was always there. Yeah, the, the, the cost of flexibility. So the, there's another thing going on now, and that is, as you know, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, I always felt that time at work doesn't quite proxy to productivity. I mean, you could be sitting at your desk for eight hours and produce nothing, or you could be at work for five That's minutes and produce <laughs> Sorry? That sometimes happens. <laughs> that sometimes happens. And, and so as we look forward with artificial intelligence taking taking up a lot of the routine jobs we used to have people sit sit sit, sit somewhere and do, um, we may not have those types of jobs in the future. So there's a there's a sea change going on, right, in in society really more broadly. Um, so so what do you think that will do to us? Well, there, there's a, a tremendous amount that's been written on this. There are people who sort of specialize in this area. And um, and so one of the issues that they look at is, is what skills are now in greater demand. So if root, routine things are taken away, so that, that's what AI is doing, is taking away the routine things. And so what people are are looking at now is that that there are other types of skills that AI hasn't figured out how to do and those are social skills and so but that's that's a literature that people like my my colleague David Deming has been working on yeah it's I mean obviously this is a it's just tough to predict but it's quite possible that we can teach machines to be quite social too <laughs> in the future. So, so I wonder, you know, the soft skills that we talk about, whether they're, they're really sort of human specific soft skills, or if, if AI really advances, the, the skills will be sort of making AI 
uh, you know, rather than doing anything, right? Uh, because everything else could be done in an automated way. Uh, but this goes to your, you know, the the handshake with the with the person in Zurich. Um, you know, when I talk to older consultants, um, they still want to get on that airplane. They still want to go sit in front of the person, you know, shake that hand. That's the only way they're going to do business. The younger consultants don't have any such constraints. They, they're not really worried about that. And so there's another type of skill being developed almost like instantaneously last uh, 18 months. And that is, if you can relate to a person by Zoom or by Teams, that is actually quite a valuable skill too. It's a different skill almost. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think we're going to see who who does well in this and who doesn't do well in this. But that I, I, I think that we're not yet there to have a good discussion about what's being lost. I mean, in my own field, we gain a tremendous amount by saying dumb things to each other, okay? So, so if I have a colleague and I want to talk about, you know, some model, half the things I'm going to say are going to just hit the floor. And I'm going to feel much better saying them to the person when I'm, like, close to the person. It's hard to say that when you're speaking to a little square. So we don't yet know what is being lost. You know, so so this notion, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and even more recently, everyone who's working at home says, I am so much more productive. I'm just so much more productive. And what they mean is that they're not commuting. commuting. They don't have to worry about what pants they're wearing. <laughs> and they don't have to worry about whether their socks match whatever else they're they're wearing. And in addition, they're doing what I call stuff. They're not necessarily doing the innovative, creative, difficult stuff. Yeah, so it will be very interesting to look at innovation rate and and see if it if you're taking a dip in innovation rate because of this this problem that we have, COVID-19. Yeah. And we won't see it, as you say, for several years into the future. Um, the, the other question is, these technologies will develop further. I mean, we have, you know, sort of basic stuff now, Teams and Zoom and all of that. Um, we could have, you know, more virtual reality. We could have. Yeah, I've I've these. looked into these. I know people who are working on them, so you can you you have sort of this virtual office, and you can go over to the water cooler, and you can tap someone on the shoulder and have them come with you into a little office and sit and work. They're they're intriguing. Uh, and maybe they will fill in for 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 the lack of 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 personal get-togethers. Yeah, there there is still there is still this huge desire. I see it in the part of all my students to be together and to to sit around the table. What we've been doing is having class 
we have seminars outside so we don't have to be masked we can eat together and there's this sense of 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 relaxation and there's this sense in which people are really coming out and and thinking together and saying things so i i i i think <laughs> we're not yet there yeah, but there are also different types of people, right? So uh, at the highest level, we could put them into two buckets, extroverts and introverts. And I saw some data that says introverts are exceptionally happy <laughs> because of COVID. Uh, they don't have to put themselves out there, you know, talk to people and, and all of that. They can, they, can, they can do things much more efficiently. Whereas extroverts are really um, not happy at all. I mean, they, they don't like this. They, they want to be out there. They want to be interacting with people. Uh, they want to be shaking hands, right? So, so, so perhaps- I, I, just, I just don't think we know. I mean, if we were, if I were a psychiatrist, I could probably tell you a lot of stories about the introverts who've had horrible breakdowns. And, and that it may be that the introvert is introverted, but is very happy to be around people who, who are extroverts and who are doing things together. I, I just don't think we know. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, I wondered, I mean, we are, we are almost two years into it now. So we should be now getting data on, let's say, behavioral health, um, you know, suicide rates, you know, things like that. And and that also, it just doesn't look good. It doesn't look good? No. And, and the other... Uh, but, but I don't think we have, you know, um, I'm speaking way beyond my expertise. I, I don't think we have, we, we, we necessarily are holding enough things constant. We know that we, we that, that, uh, uh, that drug overdoses and, and uh, that there are many things that have uh, gone out of control that that uh, that are bad, but we don't know whether this is due to the pandemic itself or due to the fact that um, that that people can't get to the psychiatrist. We know that the demand for counseling and psych psychiatric work has increased enormously. Yeah, the other dimension is kids. So, you know, schools are going through a, a really difficult time. Uh, we, we don't know the effect of that. Um, education was designed that way. And then we, we run an experiment almost uh, overnight. And, and so when those kids grow up, uh, there has to be some impact that we see. Uh, I had somebody who, um, who who got into business school last year and, and delayed going to business school one year um, because uh, he, he felt that it might be better <laughs> now because you can actually go face to face. So business schools are actually got an interesting um, interesting experiment. Because a lot of the learning in business school, as you know, is is through your peers and you know through classroom discussions and so on. Can you really do it um, over electronic ways? I'm not sure. Well, one of the things that we know last year is that uh, the the only places that I know that had in-person classes were business schools. 
but we can't separate that from the fact that they're also one of the only places that's making money off their students. <laughs> uh, and so the customer requires a product, you have to provide that product. Um, if the customer is paying for something in person, you better deliver in person. Right, right. And so, um, so in the book you talk about, if you control for all the parameters we talked about, uh, women leaving workplace for a period of time, maybe taking less number of hours working, if you control for all of that, we still see a gap, right? Uh, between men and women compensation in the US? Yes, I mean, you can take women and men who have both have continuous employment, both have the same hours, and we see differences in pay and promotions and uh, positions. And uh, so the question is, where, what is, uh, you know, who is the culprit? And so it's, uh, you know, it's it, one of the uh, ways of going about this is to say what the culprit is that there's uh, biased supervisors and there's sexual harassment and there's discrimination. And my point is that there is all of that. And I would like to stomp on all of that like there are cockroaches. And but my point is that even if I brought in a great big exterminator and I got rid of all of these bad actors, all of that, uh, there would still be a difference between men and women, particularly for those who um, who have uh, children or other caregiving responsibilities. And 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 there's um, the the culprit now is twofold. The culprit is the fact that women are the ones disproportionately taking the at you know the on-call at-home jobs uh, and the other culprit is that the cost of couple equity is so great if the cost of couple equity were very very small then couples could as you said before they could optimize by having uh, jobs that allowed them to switch off in being the on-call at-home parent. And of course, um, even, you know, the, the fact that women are taking the hit in terms of earnings and career, men are taking the hit in terms of not having the great joys of being with their children at, at various important moments in their lives. Yeah, so... Um, in 2009, again, Claudia, in my book, I took, in, uh, took it in the other direction. Um, I said men are not really, <laughs> from an evolutionary and genetic perspective, not really designed to manage complex organizations, you know, complex companies, countries, and so on, uh, because men appear to have a little bit of a process orientation, whereas women... Uh, because they manage complex situations, appear to be more competent in, in, in management of complex systems. But we don't see that, right? If you look at Fortune 500, you look at corporate boards, you look at C-level execs, we don't see that. So 
why is that? Is it is it you know some sort of a, again uh, sort of a principal agent problem or something else going on? Well, I think the the point is that having the ability to manage complex systems, it still may require you know sixteen hours a day for seven days a week to do that. And once again, if you're the on-call at home parent, it may be that you're the best person to do that, but you don't have the uh, hours in a day and a week to do that. So it's truly a sort of a resourcing problem. Uh, woman has only a certain number of hours that can be utilized in the job context. And I wouldn't say the woman. I would say the person who has the care responsibilities. It doesn't have to be the woman. It could be the man. Right. So in group five, uh, we see sort of um, birth rates declining all around the world. Um, birth rates declining, but for college educated women, they're actually going up. They're actually going up. OK. Yeah. yeah so, I, that, so, so in group four, uh, at the end of the day, 27% of the group that was born around 1955 never had a birth. Uh, for group five, the numbers go down to about 21%. So that, that doesn't say that uh, in terms of the number of, of children, uh, that isn't answering the question which we often have for total fertility rates. This is the uh, fraction of women who ever have a birth. That goes up from group four to group five. So group four says, I'm going to have career, then family. And group five says, look, you missed out. <laughs> you forgot to have the kids. So we're not going to forget to have the kids, even though we're going to delay, delay, delay even more than you did. And they managed to, to do that. Yeah, so Group 5 have, um, has better technology, um, better ways to manage uh, the timing. Um, I, I think also it's, it's really the notion in, in that I express that there is a sense that these are a succession of generations, each one sort of passing a baton to the next with a set of advice and warnings. And group five, four passes to group five, look, don't forget to have the kids. You know, remember that there, there is a moment when you're not going to be able to go back and do it. And and by and large, they did it. I mean, yeah, we will see what happens now that, you know, we've gone through a uh, a great recession and a pandemic. And so we're going to have to wait a little bit to see what what happens to group five plus, let's call it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting phenomenon. I would imagine this is more OECD specific, right, where, where we see uh, generally higher uh, birth rates from group four to group five. Um, in developing world, it, 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 it's sort of the other way, you know, when you get- well, it, it, every, it, every country has had 
just about every country has had declining birth rates, and we can talk about that. But you can think about this uh, as uh, some some economists have as a sort of a, a U-shape that um, and that much of the world is going through this downward portion. So so they begin with, um, you know, in the in an early period when women are um, not they don't have careers. They they are in the labor force very short periods of time, if at all. They have lots of kids. They're they're the ones at home. And then you move to a period in which uh, think about Japan and Korea, very, very rapid economic and educational change. And women are drawn into the labor force and yet traditions aren't changing. And they're still expected to do all the work uh, at home and even with their in-laws, let's say in India. And so they uh, pull back on the number of kids they have and, and worldwide, with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, birth rates have, have plummeted. Even in, in Saudi, they went you know, from total fertility rates of about over five to total fertility rates now of about 2.5. So all, all over, but that's the sort of declining portion of the U. And then there's a rising portion where Sweden, Norway, uh, uh, and the U.S. are, and so so they have higher birth rates than who's at the very very bottom. The very bottom, surprise surprise, are some of the Catholic countries, some of the Orthodox countries, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and then I mentioned um, Korea and Japan. Those are the ones in and, and Hong Kong that have total fertility rates that are below 1.4. Yeah, and then there's technology, right? I mean, again, it's, it's difficult to speculate, but it is possible that we will get technology that for lack of term, <laughs> lack of better term, could manufacture kids in the future <laughs> outside the- um, Outside the womb. I, I, I remember as a, as a child, um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever admitted this, that that I truly believe that by the time I was an adult, that would be the case. And so that didn't happen. No, we are far from it. I, um, I don't know how far we are from it. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's tough to say. Uh, but technology is one thing, but there are societal questions, there are ethical questions, uh, there are legal questions around it. And so, you know, the, the, the larger question is, will we get to a mature society that could actually implement that technology? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> if that will happen. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough to say. <laughs> so, uh, so going, back to, going back to the book, um, so we, we talked about sort of the, the characteristics driving these groups. Um, there is, at the very least, there is a better understanding of this problem everywhere, but we haven't quite closed the gap yet, right? So is this gap is sort of permanent in society? Will it ever close? Uh, 
Well, we've 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 gone through a couple of solutions. So let let me list the three of them. One of them is that, um, so so one of the issues has to do with the cost of flexibility, right? The other one, and I'll I'll just list these and then I'll explain. The second one has to do with norms and traditions. Who does what? And the the third one has to do with the cost of the care, you know, be it elder care or child care, whatever it is that is the additional burden on the individual who is the um, on-call at-home person. And these th three aspects of this, you know, have changed um, and and we see in front of us and uh, over the past, you know, 20 months changes in each of these. So let's go through them. The cost of flexibility, uh, that does seem to be changing and uh, we'll, we'll see. We, we still don't know. Uh, you know, when one tries to look at data on who's going back into the office, how many people are in offices, one gets all sorts of conflicting data. If you look at foot traffic data, you find that in many of the larger cities in America, no one's in the office. San Francisco and New York are ghost towns. I don't know what's happening in Boston, but the numbers are about between 30 and 35 percent of relative to what the foot traffic was to the office in uh, before the pandemic. That's a huge decline, gigantic decline. But if you look at the current population survey and you see what fraction of people say that they're still teleworking, it's actually um, a lot less than you might believe from these numbers. So I just don't think, and, and if, if you listen to various CEOs and others about what they want their workers to do and what their workers are actually doing, you certainly see that, that there is a clash. And um, one example in the city of Cambridge, uh, everyone has been told that they have to be back in the office. Now, a lot of these people don't live in Cambridge because it's expensive to live in Cambridge. They know that there are firms that would allow them to be remote. So they're saying they're using their newfound power and they're saying, uh, give me two days at home and three days I'll come in. So th this is still being worked out. So it's pretty clear that the cost of flexibility is changing. Now, let us hope that the person who's at home isn't only the woman, because then we will, what we gain on the one hand, we will lose on the other. We will have created a work from home ghetto of women. The second point are changing norms. How fast are norms changing? We know that norms have changed quite a bit, and I won't go through exactly, you know, which norms have changed. But we do see, and you said it just before, that young people have very different sense of what they want to do. And some of those young people are men. 
And so, uh, so to the extent that they say, I want to spend more time with my family, or I want to spend more time skiing, or I want to spend more time gaming, whatever it is, it's something that's different from what the older group seems to think is appropriate. And the third thing, the cost of care, for the first time in a very, very long time, we're talking about universal, federally subsidized universal preschool. We haven't talked about that. We're also, and something that, that doesn't get spoken about enough, we're talking about expanding Medicaid so that disabled and elderly individuals don't have to go into nursing homes and their daughters, and it's generally their daughters, don't have to take care of them. That's changing the cost of care. So each one of these things is moving. Yeah, so the, the on-call person you talked about, so if, if we become sort of an egalitarian, equitable society, you would see 50% of the on-call people are men, 50% are women. If that's the case, then we will see, we will not see any gender-based inequity at work at that point, right? So gender is sort of proxying this idea that women are more likely to be the on-call person at home. Yeah. If I mean, that think about same-sex couples, you know, same-sex couples, have the same problem with the cost of flexibility. And we know that even though we believe in our hearts that two women together raising kids have, are more equitable, they are still facing the same amount of money that would be lying on the table or the floor if one of them didn't take the more demanding job. So with same-sex couples, the high cost of flexibility leads to couple inequities without producing any gender inequality. Yeah, I want to get your perspective on this, Claudia. So when we say a more demanding job, these are heuristics that we use from last 20, 30 years. And you know, the, the idea that you have to be in the office to be productive, you have to be you know, in the meeting, to be visible, the, these things are these things are not important anymore. <laughs> I would argue. What's important is what, what the output is, what is being produced, and at the end of the day, what is being produced is innovation, not nuts and bolts. We are going to have machines producing nuts and bolts. So what we need people for is innovation, and that doesn't scale by time. I don't think so, at least. It doesn't scale by any of the heuristics we, we still seem to be using. Yeah, well, so let's hope that firms realize that and reward in different ways. I mean, it's still the case that law firms charge you an hourly rate. <laughs> so, yeah. You can that, find that a law firm that, that will charge you whether, you know, uh, on you know, whether they uh, win the case or whether they write the brief up uh, the best. But right now, they're still charging you not just hourly, but also by the 15 minutes. 
Yeah, this was another thing I was wrong on, Claudia. I said there will be only fixed price contracts in the future because charging by an hour, you can't really understand productivity. Mm -hmm. um, so consultants, you know, move, going around companies, you know, uh, uh, if I'm a partner, I bring in 50 MBAs and I say, well, these guys are going to be here for a month and this is what it's going to take for a month. Um, but there is no measurement of output um, really well. But there are also a large number of upper out jobs. I'm in one, okay? I, I got up, so I'm not gonna go out now. But there are a lot of people younger than I who uh, work very hard without a, a, a very good sense of what they're doing and whether it's going to pay off. But putting in more time, more thought, uh, is is the the production relationship probably is certainly the derivative is probably positive with respect to time. Well, I don't know about you know I don't know I'm thinking about a client's perspective. So I am a management consulting firm, and if I'm the client, I would contract with a management consulting firm on outcomes uh, because con contracting on hours doesn't really tell me much, right? I want to contract on outcomes, but neither consulting firms nor law firms seem to do that. Uh, I, I can't, I can't really comment <laughs> I, I would absolutely agree with you, but you know, it's my, my colleague Oliver Hart isn't around right now or else I'd bring him in here and he can talk to you. He is a specialist and obviously a Nobel Prize winner who uh, worked on all these various issues having to do with contracting. Yeah, so uh, going back to the book, um, I want to ask you sort of uh, in conclusion, what is the most important message you want to send from the book? Uh, I know that it sort of uh, it takes a historical perspective. We talked about the five different groups. We talked about what their objectives are, were, um, how they got there, how things are changing. Um, what what would be as you look forward? What would be the most important message from the book? Yeah, I think there are two messages. The first one is that it's extremely important to observe history and to know that there has been enormous progress. And in fact, one of the chapters that I love the most in the book is my chapter on group three, which is on Betty Friedan. And Friedan didn't see that there was progress. She saw that, that there was regress, but there was tremendous progress. And even group three relative, let's say to group one, it it had the ability to have both. It, it, there was some chance that they, that women were going to have family and something else that was going to uh, add to their ability to be independent and to have identity. So I think the most important thing is that there has been tremendous progress. But the second is that we're not yet there. And, and is to understand why we're not there and not to go around and blame it on the cockroaches. The cockroaches 
are bad. They're bad actors. They're biased supervisors. They're sexual harassment. They're all the bad things. But it's really the the simple ways in which we uh, uh, make relations with uh, our the people in in our families with respect to uh, what we're giving in given in the labor market. So it's it's the uh, simple um, uh, the the simple things that we do at home given the price of flexibility. And so it's every individual has to, every woman has to say, uh, I would like a job in which um, I have a very good substitute. Every man should say, I want a job in which I have at least one very good substitute. And that brings down the cost of flexibility. So, so I think that two things, there's been progress. We're not yet there, but the reason that we're not yet there is this combination of these three things, the cost of flexibility, the existence of these social norms, and the cost of care. Do you see, I know that you're still doing a lot of work at the NBER, do you see some policy prescription? So the first thing that you should realize is that when the NBER was incorporated in 1920. It was incorporated with the statement that it was a non-policy organization. There is no policy at the NBR. <laughs> but even if it's not NBR, but do you see some sort of a policy uh, idea around this to to accelerate progress? Like what? Um, I don't well, know. I, I see the fact that we have a, this is sort of separate, we have a tax structure in the U.S. that is not very favorable to, um, in general, to women, because we have a tax structure in, in which the, the marginal dollar for a couple is being taxed at the, uh, at the, at, at the tax rate, uh, at the marginal tax rate. And so therefore, uh, the um, a, a, this if we think about secondary earners, so if we think that a man is the primary earner and that the woman is the secondary earner, if they're making fairly high incomes, her tax rate is at the highest marginal rate. So that that would be one uh, one type of of change, but but by and large the um, the uh, uh, the, the policies that many people prescribe are probably not the right policies. So that's why I ask you what what you what what type of policy do you want me to consider? I have no clue, Claudia. I'm just asking. Uh, but I, but I, I think that another important issue is that is that um, is, is that government can do just so much. I mean, and the three things that I mentioned, it's really the last one in terms of the cost of care. So, the cost of care is something the government can do something about. You mentioned uh, preschool, universal preschool, and so on. And, right? and so that's what we're that's what we're talking about in Build Back Better, as well as changes in Medicaid. Yeah. Changes in Medicaid. Uh, I mean, I, I'm always puzzled by 
the the fact that education and healthcare are the are the, the two highest return activity activities for society but we don't really do that <laughs> you know so if you have the last dollar uh, as a country you should put that into educational healthcare right i mean it's going to it's going to earn you a lot more than i would say infrastructure spending or <laughs> any of those things probably it depends upon the infrastructure if the infrastructure has to do with clean water i would think that we're getting getting rid of uh, sewage I, I would think that that would be pretty high but you might think of that as health it's certainly public health certainly public or, health or yeah. vaccinations yeah, I, I really, I, I didn't read the, the book in, in, in full, Claudia, but I really liked the, the parts that I, I read. And uh, everybody knows the problem exists. I didn't, I didn't have an idea of the historical context of this problem. Uh, as you say, things are improving, but we are not there yet. Uh, there are certain things the government could do, it looks like, um, especially on the cost side of care. And uh, that might accelerate our uh, yeah. progress to I mean, there, there, there are people who think that government mandates concerning, for example, um, uh, parental leave, that having parental leave in which um, as uh, that that men have a certain amount of parental leave and if they don't use it, they lose it. Um, there, there's, there are people I know who have kids who say that the most important thing would be for men to take care of the children after about six or eight months old. And rather than have the parental, the leave beef when the kids, when the, the children are tiny and in diapers, it's much better that you know, particularly if there's someone nursing them, that that the care come, you know, then let the woman uh, go back to work and have the, the, the father take care of the kids. So there are, you know, good policy, I think, has to listen to the individuals who know the most about it. And those are the parents. Do we know, uh, you know, I think with the Scandinavian countries, you know, Finland, Sweden, maybe New Zealand, you know, some of this sort of, let's say, advanced societies. Uh, what, what are their uh, policies? Do you know how, how they? Well, the, the policies that I just that I just um, said, but <clears throat> there there are things that that are gained and there are things that are lost. So in uh, so Sweden is certainly the front runner, without a doubt, in, in just about everything. And yet, it isn't the front runner with regard to women in management, for example, women in, in various high places. And the reason is that when you have leave that's really long uh, and it's mainly taken by women, it's, it's, a better, it's a better place for parents to be, but it's also a place in which women are perhaps not going to get as far. Yeah, this is a little bit of a tangent. I just want to get your perspective on this, Claudia. So there's a lot of talk about um, a guaranteed minimum income. Uh, do you think that that sort of a policy could 
good help? Uh, I guaranteed. Uh, so I would. So what we have put in place <clears throat> is uh, a non-refundable child um, uh, payments. That I think is the most important. Uh, the fact that America is a rich country and has immense amounts of child poverty is a national shame. And what we did during the pandemic, amazingly enough, <clears throat> is lower the rates of child poverty by an enormous amount. I think that that's the most important thing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Claudia. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, thank you for making me think very hard. Thank you. Stay safe. Okay, bye now, Gil. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.